So you don't even have to give me a signal, you can just turn it on. Um, so this semester, summer, this summer we're doing a series uh, that I'm calling a Glossary of Grace. And uh, what we're doing over these eight weeks, by the way, this is the next to last week. Uh, <gasps> <and> this, <laughs> yeah, this happens every year. This happens every year. Uh, I, actually, I like saving it up and uh, so I can get that reaction. Yes, and so that's what happens. Um, we run this thing for eight weeks, and then I actually have to leave town. And so you know, I could come back and try and pick it up again after I'm gone for two weeks, but it's not worth the effort. So uh, next Tuesday is our last one. That being said, there is a history uh, of uh, stu- students continuing to meet after we're gone. Not in my home, um, although I think that has happened before. Um, but uh, usually they'll just gather somewhere in the park and grill out and hang out. And so if someone wants to organize that or if somebody in Oakland wants to host, uh, have at it. Let me know and I'll promote it and try to make it happen. I might even be willing to help you pay for some of the supplies you need for food. Um, but yeah, we're done here next Tuesday night because, again, I have to travel. Anyway, sorry about that, but not so sorry, actually. Anyway, the, uh, our, our series has been called A Glossary of Grace. And over eight weeks, what we're doing is taking a uh, one of the Bible's uh, big theological words and uh, sort of just talking about it um, and trying to help us understand this biblical concept of grace, unmerited favor, uh, undeserved grace or love, a, a gift that we receive from God. And if you will, grace has been described as a, as a gem or a diamond and uh it's multifaceted. Uh, it has different sides and, and ways you can view it. And each one of these words offers us a different view or different aspects of God's work of grace in, uh, in Christians' lives. So we've talked about... Let's see if somebody else can do it. What have we talked about? Six things. What are they? Justification. Justification. Adoption. Adoption. Repentance. Repentance. Propitiation or atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Grace. Grace. And Charles. Regeneration. So, going in the opposite order of which we did it, I believe. I believe it was grace, regeneration. Uh, Now I've lost it. Atonement, justification. Adoption. Nope, missed one. Repentance. Repentance. Didn't miss one. Repentance was last week. And now this week we'll talk about sanctification. Uh, of all the ones we've done, they've all been, uh, they're all multi-syllabic, polysyllabic, big theological words. Um, but I feel like I've been able to explain them pretty clearly and, sh- and simply. And sanctification is a little harder to explain simply. Uh, and, it's, and it's not because the Bible doesn't say much about it. Actually, the Bible says a lot about sanctification. That's part of the problem. There's tons and tons of texts about sanctification. And there's tons of confusion, actually, uh, about sanctification uh, among Christians and in our lives. And some of you may be wondering, like, would you just tell us what the word sanctification is so I can tell you whether or not I'm confused about it? Um, So sanctification is, in some ways, most simply the Christian life, or how Christians are supposed to live 
change and grow. Uh, or rather, the, the doctrine or theology of how Christians are supposed to change, live, and grow. And my own experience was, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, I grew up in the church but became a Christian right before I went to college. And there was an initial change and, uh, and some growth. At the same time, I spent much of my time in college trying to figure out how the Christian life worked. Lots of doubt, lots of anger and frustration as uh, I grew in some areas, but was really, really, really rough in some others. Um, you know, so I'm going to tell you my whole life story. But for instance, I really did begin to love people. But uh, I had a foul temper and a foul tongue. And as someone who's really good with words and likes to read a lot, I was a what you might call a good cusser. Uh, there is no such thing, of course, but I was wonderfully creative. And, uh, and that did not go away, and I really wanted it to. And I didn't understand how I couldn't stop doing things and, uh, and how I couldn't grow in areas that I wanted to. I was really frustrated for a number of years uh, with how I was sort of growing unevenly or strangely and sometimes wondering if I was growing at all. And uh, one of the things that really helped me in college was I ended up going to this church where the pastor was very, very, very slowly teaching through the book of Romans. And, uh, like, he started before I came to college, and he didn't finish until after I left college. Um, and I was pretty smart, and I graduated college early, but not, like, in less than three and a half years. Uh, so he took his time. And I sat under his teaching through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And by the time I left there, I had a pretty good understanding of what the Christian life was supposed to look like. And so today... I, I'm going to give you some extra handouts, actually. These are, there's one for everyone. Uh, what I have here are additional texts from the New Testament about sanctification, uh, about the Christian life. You can read those on your own. Uh, there's nothing there about tonight's text, actually. But there are some other texts um, from other places in the New Testament. And a few quotes and definitions as well you might find helpful. Uh, but what I want us to do is, is sort of settle down in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I'm not going to read all those chapters. We'll be here all night. But I am going to read pieces of a couple of them. So, um, yeah, let's start, if you have your Bible. Turn to Romans 8. I'll read that and then I'll pray for us. And then we'll work our way backwards. I'll just sort of read a text and talk about it, read a text and talk about it. So let's start in Romans 8, verse 18. Okay, halfway through the book of Romans, in verse 18, chapter 8, Paul writes, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed... To us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be free, will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's skip down to verse 28. Uh, I'll read that as well. Um... 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into this text a little bit. Okay, Father, I thank you for these uh, students who are currently, for the most part, not students. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity the summer affords us to work and hang out. And on a night tonight, uh, gather around and study your word and figure out, uh, hopefully, what this means for us. And uh, tonight we touch on a topic that's uh, often fraught with confusion and frustration. And uh, we pray, Father, that you not only grant us clarity, uh, but confidence in your work and uh, an understanding of how it is that we're supposed to grow closer to you and to be more like you. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, the first text in Romans 8, uh, and I'm gonna, this is point number one if you're a note taker. Uh, Romans 8 tells us that our story, our individual stories, if we're Christians, and our struggle with sin is part of a much bigger story. That's really important, that our story is part of God's much bigger story. By the way, I need to give credit where credit's due. I borrowed some of the ideas and notes from a former RUF campus pastor named uh, Rob Edwards that Kelly and I know, both know very well. Uh, this point in particular, I, I borrowed from Rob. Um, oh, there's a way of thinking about it. I didn't, he, he didn't like write Romans 8, but he had, he had some of these ideas, and I thought they were helpful. And what he does is he encourages us to think of our individual stories in light of God's much bigger story. Uh, we can get very myopic and individualistic in our struggle with sin and our frustration with our growth. And what Romans 8 says is, first of all, the big picture is God is restoring the world. That, uh, that we're part, this is verses 18 to 23, we're part of a cosmic story. The, the story of how Jesus has come to redeem all things, to restore everything. And that the whole creation's crying out for redemption. And that we are too. But we're just a part of everything else that's crying out for restoration. And, uh, and Jesus has begun the work of restoring all those things. And we're just a part of that. Um, and that's good. That's good for me to hear that. It's good for me to know in every way possible that I am not the center of my own universe or God's. That God is doing a much bigger work than just me. He's working on me as well. But it's good for us to get out of ourselves uh, in, in all kinds of ways and to realize we're part of a bigger story. But uh, secondly, I think this text also points out to us that the gospel is bigger than we often think. It encourages us to have what I'm going to call a big G gospel uh, versus a truncated gospel. What verses uh, 28 to 30 tell us is that the way Paul in the Bible thinks about salvation is bigger than the way some of us think about salvation. Uh, Perhaps you grew up in a church where when you heard the gospel it was, believe in Jesus and you don't go to hell. Well, that's true. But it's a very narrow way of looking at God's saving work. And what Paul's going to say here, and what he does say here in verses 28 to 30, is that salvation, maybe with a big S, although it's not written with a big S, or the gospel, is the message that God not only intends to save us from punishment, but to make us like Jesus. Uh, That the gospel includes, these are three big fancy words that we've talked about our will, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Um, so while God's restoring the world, He's out to restore us. And we see that in verses 28, 29, and 30, that uh, God aims to 
conform us, this is verse 29, to the image of His Son. And then verse 30, that He chooses and calls people that He might first justify them, which is to declare them right, and then glorify them, which is to finally, completely make them right, to make them beautiful like Jesus, to remove all the broken things and to fully restore us as we're supposed to be. And in between justification, the first act of God declaring us right, and then the final act of glorification, finally making us right, there is this long process and period in which we live, which is called sanctification. And the aim of sanctification is described in verse 28 of God working to conform us to the image of Jesus. He's out to make us uh, like Jesus. Beautiful, whole, loving, uh, righteous. One who naturally, from the heart, loves God and loves others well. So, uh, in other words, and this is sort of a formal definition of sanctification, God is out to renew us in the whole person, every part of you, from the inside out, after the image of Jesus. That's what God wants. And in some ways, that's the end or the goal of salvation. It's not just so you don't go to hell. It's not just you get off free from your uh, punishment for what you deserve. It's that you will become like Jesus. That's the goal. That's what God wants for us, to do that, because it brings Him glory, and it's good for us, and it's good for the world. Um, what this means is, and you've maybe heard this, maybe you grew up Baptist and every church service ended with Just As I Am, uh, which, you know, it's a good song, Just As I Am. It doesn't matter what you are, you can come. And the Bible says that. It doesn't matter what you're like, you can come to God. Um, but when you come to Him, no matter what you're like, the Bible promises you will not stay like you are. God is out to make you like Jesus. Uh, that's His goal, is to make you beautiful and whole like the Son of God. As uh, one theologian put it, sanctification, so we're talking about this process by which God makes us like Jesus, is glorification begun. Glorification is God's finished work of making us like Jesus. Sanctification is the beginning of the process. And glorification is sanctification perfected. I'll say that again. Glorification is sanctification perfected. So uh, just real quickly, some application. This means that God's big goal for you in life is not your agenda, not your comfort, not your dream, not your success. They, they, you, you may get to do those things. You might. I have no idea. He, he might allow that. That might be part of his will for you. His ultimate goal and will for you is to make you beautiful like Jesus. That's what he wants to do more than anything else. And he's willing to use your failures and your disappointments and your successes toward that greater end. Um, and uh, this means you can be confident. You can have confidence. You can have confidence that he's going to do this. Um, there are other texts, like in Philippians 1, that tell us the work that God does. He's going to continue to do until he's finished. He is uh, dedicated to making you like his son. All right, so we should expect then, if this is what God is after, to make us like Jesus, we should expect progress. If God is committed to making us like his son, and willing, like Romans 8 says, to, to work the things in our lives for our good, which is to make us like Jesus, then we should expect progress. Maybe not instantaneous success, but progress. But we should also expect some struggle. That's what Romans 7 is about. Let's read verses 14 to 25. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good, but now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now I do what I do not want, but it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, I'm reading, I'm reading big chunks of text. I'm going to read a big chunk of Romans 6, too. And I don't want to say uh, everything that can be said will be here all night. I'm just going to point out the highlights here. Uh, if you read through Romans 7 really quickly, uh, you should a couple things to just jump off the text. This guy's frustrated. Like he's he's frustrated, and uh, and you can almost tell. I mean, he's he's very thoughtful and very theological as he writes, but you can hear the confusion, and he even admits it in verse fifteen. Uh, I do not understand my own actions. See that uh, Paul is admitting that there is something about sin in the human heart that's irrational. Uh, there's a line from a brother where art thou where the know it all says it's a fool that looks for looks for. Uh, Reason in the human heart, of the human heart, and that's right. And in some ways, Paul is saying the human heart and its complexity, especially the heart of a believer, where these competing realities of law and uh, and sin and uh, desire and also a love for Jesus and the work of the Spirit, it uh, that that battle leaves him utterly confused and struggling. Um, so we have these expectations for Christians. We have these expectations for growth and for success. And we're often surprised by this, by struggle. That the things we hoped would go away, don't go away. And the things that we hoped would grow are much slower taking fruit than we thought they would. And so the, the, the confusion's there and the conflict's there. You see that in verses 21 to 3. 21 to 23. Hey, I need you to stop jumping up and down. Um, verse 21 23. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. And this isn't the only time Paul uses this language. If you go and read Galatians 5, Galatians 5 might be familiar to some of you. It's where he describes the fruit of the Spirit and the uh, Maybe if you grew up in church, you grew up singing a little song about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's really nice and it's happy. And, um, but that context of that chapter is one of actually conflict. It's war. He says there that you'll have this Spirit and, and, the, and the fruit of the Spirit growing. But you'll also have weeds and, and the human heart and its sinful nature battling as well. In some ways what Paul is saying is the normative experience of a Christian is not like struggle-free growth and struggle-free success. It's not all love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness of control. It's, it's conflict. It's struggle. It's confusion and it's frustration that we grow and we grow in love and we grow in joy, but at the same time we struggle. We struggle with pettiness and we struggle with selfishness and we struggle with envy and we struggle with all these things at the same time. And that the battleground is right here in the human heart. That's where it's happening. So uh, the good news here is God's at work. 
and we should expect growth, and we should expect sanctification. But sin is still at work in us. And uh, when you become a Christian, you don't forget how to sin. And uh, you don't forget how good sin is in some ways, or how, how uh, wonderful it might make you feel, that, that temptation is still at work. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that, those desires that are part of your human nature don't j- usually just go away. And so we have no reason to expect success without struggle or growth um, without some, some battling to happen. And uh, if, you, if you expect it to be easy, then uh, what you'll probably end up doing is despairing. If you expect it to be easy, and you get the impression from everybody else that, hey, the Christian life's easy. You just trust in Jesus and all your problems go away and you grow. And that's what people told you it's like. And then you realize, but all this stuff's in my heart hasn't gone away. Then you think you're the weird one. And everybody else is getting it right. And you end up despairing and doubting uh, because someone's not told you the truth about what the Christian life's really like. And here Paul is, a wonderful example of a Christian that loves God and loves others well. And he says, it's a struggle. It's hard. Um, all right, so lastly, chapter 6. So far we understand that our story, our struggle with sin, our growth is part of a much bigger story that God's out to make us like Jesus. Uh, seven, Chapter 7, it's still a struggle because not only do we have God working in us by His Spirit as we're united to Jesus, but the old man, the sinful nature, is still at work in us. Sin uh, has still got a hold on us, and uh, we haven't forgotten what it's like. Chapter 6 um, sort of lets us on to the new realities that are a part of our life when we trust in Jesus. So, in some ways, this is the most simplest and straightforward definition of what sanctification is. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 and only say two or three things about it. All right, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. All right, Paul says a lot of things here, but he basically is saying the same thing over and over. The short thing he's saying is, when you become a Christian, when you trust in Jesus... Your relationship to, ch- to sin changes. Uh, and it changes because when you become a Christian, you have given yourself to a new master or a new Lord. It's like marriage. You've taken vows and you've 
pledged to forsake all others. And in some ways here you're pledging to a forsaken sin. Um, but it, it, because uh, in Christianity, when you trust in Jesus, um, it's not just a mental acknowledgement, but spiritually something happens called union with Christ that this, talks, this verse talks about. Uh, we are vitally connected to Jesus in such a way that everything that's true of him becomes true of us. Maybe not everything, but almost everything. That uh, union with Christ, this vital spiritual connection, is a reality. You see it all over this text, just in his use of prepositions. Um, verse 3, uh, let's point it out. Um, you've been baptized into Christ, into his death. Verse 4, buried with him by baptism. Verse 5, united with him, united with him again. Verse 6, with him. Verse 8, died with Christ. Did any of you remember actually dying with Christ 2,000 years ago? Were any of you there? Were you, did you die at the same time to your knowledge? No, Paul's making a, a real strong statement that when we trust in Christ, we are spiritually intertwined with Christ in a vital way that everything that's true of him becomes true of us. Uh, he goes on, he's not done, uh, that you live with him, verse 11. You're in Christ Jesus. Um, so when you trust in Christ, you're, you're connected to Him, united to Him by the Spirit in, a, in this thing called union with Christ. And uh, what's true of Him becomes true of you. And this, this chapter is making one particularly strong argument. The thing that's most true of Him that's true of you is His resurrection and death. Or rather, His death and resurrection. That uh, when you're connected to Jesus by faith... When he died, it's like you died. And when he died, he died for you. That, that puts to death your guilt for sin, but it also breaks the power of sin. When he died to sin, you died to sin. And when he rose with resurrection power and newness of life, we also were raised in newness of life. So, um, yeah, in verse 6, this means, you see this in chapter 6, verse 6, this means that we know our old self, this is our sinful nature, our desires. Um, not the desires, but our sinful nature that was enslaved to our sinful self. Uh, it was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, what it means is if we're connected to Jesus, His death for us did something to us that makes a new kind of life possible for us. We have a newness of life. We have a new freedom. We're not only dead to sin's guilt, but we're dead to sin's dominion. Verse 12, verse 12 says, Let not sin reign in you. And uh, what Paul is saying is, before you're a Christian, I mean, you can do good things, but for the most part, when sin said do it something, you just did it. And, and now you no longer have to listen. That you have a new master, a new Lord, a new love, and a new ability. That you're free. In other words, baptism or joining Jesus in his death is like a kind of funeral. It's a happy funeral. It's the death of an enemy. Um, and, uh, and it means now you're free and you're really alive. You have a newness of life. That his resurrection is a guarantee not just of your eternal spiritual life, but of a new kind of life for you right now. Where you have a new ability to obey, a new ability to love, and, and a new affection. Because you realize that the Son of God lived and died for you. As verse uh, 12, 13, and 14 points out that what Christ did for you... Um, transformed you or turned you from, uh, how's, it, how's it put it, uh, as those who've been brought from death to life. That being connected to Jesus, you as he went through death and 
into life for you. He brought you along and brought you out of death into life in Him. And, uh, and the way we're supposed to think about ourselves, this is the last thing, the way we're supposed to think about ourselves is really important here. Verse 11, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Why should we do that? Because in Jesus, it's what's true of us. If we're connected to Jesus by faith, this is what's true to us. That there's a sense in which we've died to sin. doesn't mean it's not operative in our life. It doesn't mean we don't want to do things that we're not supposed to do. Chapter 7 tells us that struggle continues. But it means we don't have to listen. It means that we can serve God and love God differently. It means we can put sin to death in our life. It means that there is the promise of growth and the expectation of growth and progress. And, uh, and that we should be excited about that. It means that uh, we really can, not perfectly, but we really can grow in our loyalty to Jesus and our love for others and our ability to obey. And, uh, and we need to remember that this is not something done out of duty or uh, drudgery, but out of love. That because Christ loved us so much to do this, that we respond in love to Him. That, uh, yeah, sometimes people think about the Christian life as a sort of like he died for me therefore i must live for him uh as some kind of like obligation and the reality is when i when i say that the whole thing is gospel the whole thing is good news it's good news that you no longer have to live in sin it's good news you no longer have to live in slavery to aspects of your life that you hate that hurt others it's all good news the law itself is not bad news the law is a description of god's beauty and how he wants to make you beauty beautiful as well uh this is all good news that jesus is committed to making you beautiful like himself and it's a struggle uh, but it's a good one, and it's one that God's going to carry forth to the very end. Into glorification, which we'll talk about next week. All right, thus concludes my spiel. Do you have questions? Make sure that's not my kids climbing into a car. Mm-hmm. Um, for your, uh, Turn that on. Like description. Just the one Sanctification you backwards through three chapters of Romans. Yep. I guess like, why weren't they written? Why were they written that way? I'm sure Paul has a good reason for doing it forwards, and I had a good reason for doing it backwards. Um, you know. I can't actually say why Paul did it that way as opposed to why I did it this way. Um, I'm thinking through the rest of Paul's letter regarding order. Uh, Paul's way of thinking about it's most natural, actually. In, in, in chapters uh, 3 through 6, he's talking about our union with Christ and its benefits. So in chapter 3 and 4, it's justification. Chapter 5, it's adoption and its other benefits. Chapter 6 begins his chat about uh, sanctification. And in some ways, the way he goes about sanctification is also really logical. Chapter 6, you're united to Jesus and his death and resurrection. Therefore, you have a new way of living. You're free from the dominion of sin. Well, if you read that apart from chapter 7, what you end up doing is saying, Really? I can be perfect. I can do anything. And you end up beating the daylights out of people because they're not perfect. How do I know that? Because this is exactly what I did. I did it for six months to a year in college. I read chapter six and I'm like, I can be perfect. 
Why aren't people more holy? What's wrong with you? Why don't you get serious about being holy? And uh, I began to realize I was beating people up. And then I read chapter 7, <laughs> and I realized, oh, I'm being a hypocrite, blind to my own sin and beating people up, because I'm, I'm blind to the struggle, my own struggle. So chapter 6 tells us we're free in some ways. Chapter 7 tells us we're free within a degree, but we still have a struggle. And the struggle is not just against sin out there, but sin in our own hearts. Um, and chapter 8 is about more than what I just said. He talks about the role of the Holy Spirit as well, and how when we're united to Jesus, we're united to the Spirit, and the Spirit's work in us as well. So His way is logical. I just wanted to do it backwards because I wanted to talk about that part about the story first. Because um, I think we tend to think about our struggle with sin in very individualistic ways. And, uh, and, and we... Not, I mean, we sort of exclude the fact that God might be working in us at all at our worst moments. But I wanted us to realize this is a big picture. The big picture is God's not only working in the world to restore the world, but He's determined and committed to making us like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. That's why I started with chapter 8. That's the goal. Now the struggle. Now how we're going to get there. Okay. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. I guess my big question is just more difficult to wrap my head around. If we're constantly failing, how are we supposed to see that as God making us more perfect if success is what is told to us is what is actually good? Like how is failure perfect? Well, that's a great question, and I don't want you to think that failure is perfect. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I think I get what you're saying. I'm going to answer your question sideways and then come back and answer your question more directly. Uh, this is sort of a... I'm not saying this is that, but this is similar. So there's a parable in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, which is his big picture work in the world. And what he says is the kingdom's like you go out and scatter seed, but then overnight the enemy comes and scatters weeds. And uh, people want to know, the people working, like, should we go and pull the weeds out? And, uh, and his answer is No that uh, it, will, it will kill the growth of everything else. We'll just wait to the end, and when we cut everything down, we'll sort it all. And you know, I, I'm not saying sanctification is just like that, but I am saying God has showed in, in a big picture scale that he's more than willing in some ways to deal with the mess on a cosmic scale. Uh, that the kingdom of God can grow, the church can grow, while bad things continue to happen. And that's, that's my only point. This is an analogy. The same is true in a Christian. That we can grow more and more like Jesus while we continue to fail in other areas. And uh, the classic example of this is Paul himself. Not in these books, although chapter 7 sort of points that out. But uh, later in another book, um, as he's talking to Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. At this point in his life, uh, he's one of the few remaining apostles. He's written most of the letters of the New Testament. He's planted most of the churches in the ancient world. Um, he's been a good pastor. And he's probably more like Jesus than anyone we've ever met. But he's come to a point in his aged self, in his 60s, where he thinks he's the worst of sinners. And uh, the, the classic way of us understanding this is that as we grow in our Christian lives, we become more and more aware of how good God is. As we become more and more aware of how good God is, we become more and more aware of how not good we are. We become more and more aware of how selfish we are. So it's really early, you know, I realized, like, this is an aside, I'll come back to this. When I was 16, I thought my big problems were, I cussed too much. 
Well, that's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem was I had a rageful, prideful heart that thought I deserved to get everything when I wanted it. That's what's underneath the cursing and the and the frustration. A, a deeply selfish heart that thought I had a right to have everything. That kind of growth and perspective of knowledge of self is what happens throughout the life of a Christian. That you realize throughout time, I'm actually worse than I thought. That I thought I just had a problem with patience. Actually, I realized now that my problem with patience is I want to control everything. <laughs> I want to control everything. I thought I had a problem with patience with other people because they were stupid. No, I realize now that I think everyone's stupid and I think I'm the smartest person in the world. Like, that's that kind of growth of self knowledge when you realize, like, I've got some real issues down in here. Uh, that happens while we get to know God better. And so Paul can say, honestly, at the end of his life, I feel like I'm the worst Christian ever. Is he actually? No. All the time that he's been growing in a greater awareness of God's holiness and his own sinfulness, he's actually become more and more like Jesus. He's actually become a more loving person. He's actually become a more faithful, loyal, serving serving person. A more sacrificial person. And that's sort of the nature of the Christian life. That as we gr- become more aware of the things that are in our hearts, we're able to repent of more, of them more, and we're able to depend on Jesus more, and He's able to transform us more. And so, you know, Paul may have said that, and everyone that said Paul is like, No, Paul, I can't be. We know you. You're nothing like that. And Paul says, I know my heart. That's what's in there. That's how you can continue to fail and still grow. And there's there's no point in the Christian life, this is what we were sort of talking about last week, at which repentance is not necessary. Like, none of us are ever going to be perfect. You know, a mature Christian is someone who realizes pretty quickly, like, I can't go very far without messing up. I've got to repent, trust on Jesus, and continue on. Um, you know, I'll just sort of give a, a, one a pastor's example of this. Uh, he's a pretty well-known pastor in the denomination. He did our training a couple of years ago. And he said, I've realized over the years that if I don't stop three hours into the day and do a deep self-assessment of my own heart, I can lose the whole day. And what he was saying was, we all have like maybe three or four areas of our life where any one of them can take us off the rails. Maybe it's one thing that sets us off, sets us off at 11, and before we know it, it's ruined our whole day. So what he said was, every day at noon, I set aside five minutes, and I pull out a card that like confronts me in my deepest areas. Like, are you a control freak today? Or what are you angry about? Like those three or four things, he really knows his heart. And he checks them and checks his heart, and he repents of it right then and there so it doesn't ruin his whole day. And that's just sort of good self-knowledge and repentance. And it allows him to grow and to be more of a servant throughout the day. And I think that's the kind of self-knowledge and the kind of relationship with Jesus and the ability to turn to Him and repent throughout the day quickly that uh, God's calling us to. So, I'm not sure I answered your question directly. I tried. Yeah. Anybody else? Please, please, please. This is fun for me. I get to talk more. No? Yes. How do you realize you're feeling without going into despair? 
Well, in some ways, the long answer is Romans 6, 7, and 8. <laughs> like all of what it had been to say. The big picture is, He set me free out of love. Resurrection and death, those are all true of me, even if it doesn't feel like it. Like, He has given me new life. I did die with Him. I do have a new life and new abilities. But the struggle is real and the struggle is normal. I mean, the biggest thing about despair that I was trying to make the point of was if you're not told that the struggle is real and the struggle is normal, then you will despair because you'll be thinking, I'm the only one really struggling. And that's the worst. Where everyone, where you get the impression like, this is easy for everyone else, but I'm just, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Um, and then I think ultimately what we talked about last week, glorification, is the ultimate nail in the coffin of despair. That uh, we might actually, I mean, the Bible holds this out as a possibility. We might and will fight all our life long. And maybe we'll make progress in some areas and not in others. But in the end, God wins. He's going to make us right and perfect. That's the good news of glorification. That uh, God, just Philippians 1 6, He's not going to give up on the work you started. He's going to make us like Jesus. And uh, I think that whole big story, the big G gospel, is really important in that regard. If it's, you know, this is what I mean by individualized. If it's just me and my sin, and this private little secret world, despair is a half step away. Um, But if I keep the big story in mind, that God is committed to making me like Jesus, and in the end, He absolutely will, let's err in light and hope into the whole equation. So, I think also the other thing here is really helpful. I don't want to give it away too much because it's one of your discussion questions. If the struggle is real and the struggle is normal, then it allows you to open up with other people. And uh, that's a huge, that's a huge anti-despair tactic. Um, so, all right, time for one more. I don't know if it's actually time for one more, but anybody else?